LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com. Our discussion centres on compulsory public education and specifically the work of author and former New York School Teacher of the Year John Taylor Gatto and the 2012 film The Ultimate History Lesson. Uh, John Taylor Gatto is the author of Weapons of Mass Instruction which focuses on mechanisms of traditional education which cripple imagination, discourage critical thinking and create a false view of learning as a byproduct of rote memorization drills. His earlier book, Dumbing Us Down, introduced the now famous expression of the title into the common vernacular. This book adds another chilling metaphor to the brief against conventional schooling. Gatto demonstrates that the harm school inflicts is rational and deliberate. The real function of pedagogy, he argues, is to render the common population manageable. To that end, young people must be conditioned to rely upon experts to remain divided from natural alliances and to accept disconnections from their own lived experiences. They must at all costs be discouraged from developing self-reliance and independence. Escaping this trap requires a strategy Gatto calls open source learning, which imposes no artificial divisions between learning and life. Through this alternative approach, our children can avoid being indoctrinated. Only then can they achieve self-knowledge, good judgment and courage. Hello and welcome, Richard Grove, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm pleased to be here, Greg. Uh, I'm a fan of LegalizeFreedom.com, and I'm a fan of legalizing freedom in general. (laughs) Good man. Now, today we're going to talk about the compulsory state education system, uh, and there a a version of which exists in virtually every country in the world. And we're going to talk about this in conjunction with the work of John Taylor Gatto, who was a former New York City school teacher, award-winning uh, school teacher and author of various books, including uh, Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling, and also the more recent Weapons of Mass Instruction. Now, you and your uh, colleagues over at tragedyandhope.com, you worked with John Taylor Gatto on uh, a documentary entitled The Ultimate History Lesson, which was a five-plus-hour journey examining the history, root causes, and consequences of public schooling. And before we dive into John Taylor Gatto's work and its implications, perhaps you should just tell us all um, what you guys do over at uh, tragedyandhope.com and how you discovered John Taylor Gatto and how you came to work on the documentary. Well, in my search for uh, truth amidst reality, uh, you come across a lot of different things on the Internet, a lot of different ideas, and you're not sure how to weigh out these ideas. And I think that was one indication to me Uh, Seeing so many people struggle with uh, discerning that which exists from that which does not exist, uh, truth from illusion, if you will. And seeing so many people struggle, I thought, wow, there's a a problem with the education system in this this country. And then I learned enough to know that I, too, was a victim of the public education system. And we're taught in a compulsory school manner to, quote unquote, know things without ever having asked the questions, the substantial questions, and finding the relevant answers. Instead, we're presented with what our, you know, uh, our belief system says. These these are facts, but when you look into how these facts are amalgamated in these textbooks, and the fact that the teachers a lot of times don't know the story for themselves, so they don't know the difference between the fact and fiction, and thus uh, a lot of fiction gets taken through the fifteen thousand hours of public schooling as fact. And it was. Not my first encounter with John Taylor Gatto. I had heard a lot about him. I had checked out some of his videos. I had uh, gotten one of his books. I read through the Underground History of American Education, I think, back in maybe 2006. 
it would take me a couple more years of study before I could really start to identify the relevance and the the gravamen. I mean, the the things that are described in that book are they're so far beyond our belief system that it took me a while to to grasp these ideas. But once I had done my own survey outside of those books and came back to those books uh, by John Taylor Gatto, like dumbing us down, it was as clear as day. In fact, you know, here's a guy who was 20 or 30 years ahead of his time. Um, and, he, and what he was discovering should have never been there to discover. So what we're looking at is the history of 20th century compulsory education. When we look into that history, it shows you uh, the foundations that were created by the robber barons and all these other corporate entities like the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. These are all the big foundations that helped to shape and did not, not just help to shape. They mandated the policy, which w became known as compulsory schooling. All the way up through today, it's being changed such that I don't want to call it brainwashing or mind control. But what what are those things? They are the changes in the beliefs, attitudes, emotions, reactions of the student population, which then grows into the voting adult population. They're being filled with a bunch of nonsense. And so in discovering, you know, my own faults and my own blind spots, uh, I started to really get the brilliance of John Taylor Gatto's work. And it was probably a year and a half process of uh, I wrote letters a couple times. He was out of the country, this sort of thing. And then a friend of mine, Jan Irvin of the Gnostic Media podcast had interviewed John. And so I didn't want to just do a podcast interview. So I approached him one last time uh, last June of 2011. Maybe it was the end of May. And uh, he called me on the phone and said, yeah, he'd like to fly out here and, and do the, the video interview that I offered. Because what I noticed was on the Internet um, – all the videos on YouTube seem to be poor video quality, especially poor audio quality, and it's hard to hear him clearly. And so I wanted to put something together that memorializes his body of work because it's so important not only to people now, but to people in the future. And what he describes it as is his birthright. So what we ended up doing was a, you know, a five-hour interview over two days, which comes out to four DVDs or one Blu-ray. And it really helps people who want to take the time, you know, maybe one day, you know, a week, one hour a day. Uh, to go through this information and to internalize it, start to integrate it into their lifestyle, because it's the things that have been changed in our lifestyle. It's the habits that have been changed. It's our it's our ways of thinking. And what we feel is wealth and what we feel is valuable has been changed over the 20th century purposely to socialize us, to make us uh, unwittingly participant in a collectivist movement to uh, to dissolve national boundaries and to create globalism is their plan. That's what the documents say. Yeah, I mean, a lot of adults um, these days will perhaps look back at their, their school days with some fondness. And But if you put it to them, well, you know, what did you really learn there that you used after school? They may admit that, OK, so it's not all it's cracked up to be. And, you know, maybe they were bullied and maybe they didn't enjoy sports, whatever. But if you put it to them that, uh, well, let me tell you what really happened. And that's that you were taught to jump through hoops. You were taught to be reflexively obedient to authority you were taught to accept controlled uh, and narrow view of reality. Uh, you learned to manage your expect expectations about yourself and your future and what you could achieve. Uh, you learned to see standing out from the crowd as basically negative. And ultimately, you learned not to think for yourself. I think a lot of people would say, no, 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 I don't recognize school as that. And yet, uh, as John Taylor... That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, And you must be reading out of Dumbing Us Down yeah. uh, from 1992 that John wrote. Because when I read that, I was like, wow... This guy has nailed it. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, everyone comes upon this information at a time when you can understand it, because if not, it just it's noise and you won't remember the guy's name and you won't remember the book. And I encountered his books right when I was at the beginning of, you know, being able to see it's valuable, but I don't yet understand what he's saying. Then I went out and collected a bunch of other pieces of the puzzle, you know, on my own. And then I was able to say, wow, you know, and then I looked into what he, you know, he provides a lot of references and, you know, the primary sources, and he really ex he exemplifies uh, what is proper, what is proper, you know, in, in the terms of etiquette and communicating this stuff on paper. As a reader, you don't know if anything's true or false, but when you can dig into the source materials, when you can see the materials that John used to formulate his own perspectives, then you too can start to formulate your own perspective. So it wasn't so much about seeing that this guy was right. It was that... I had already encountered all these different puzzle pieces and I was trying to make sense out of them. And then you come across these books and it's like, 
hey, somebody has been here before. Somebody has left you a credible map that you can use to help you know, guide yourself through each and every day. And it starts with recognizing, yes, uh, all those things you named. The obedience to authority was the next thing out of my mouth uh, you know, as soon as you were done talking. But then you started reading that list, and I was like, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Stanley Milgram, Skinner, all these different ideas are used to control us. And that's an essential part of schooling. It's, um, it's a testing terrarium. It's an artificially created environment to bring out certain behaviors and to suppress other behaviors, so speak, especially behaviors that are freedom-based, self-reliance-based, uh, not up to listening to an authority who's being irrational. These type of things that are natural in children must be broken. And the philosophy and the, the documents from the psychology on this over the last 150 years are remarkable. How open they can be when stating you know, that they want to ruin children and that's their, that's their way of gaining control over this country. Yeah, well, I was just coming on to that, actually, because in the in the prologue in uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction, uh, John Taylor Gatto asks the question, do we really need school? And of course, even in the middle of the 20th century, parents and adults would be saying, well, yes, of course we do. You know, hire our children to learn, even somewhere like the US with a, you know, something of a culture of homeschooling. But if you read his material, um, it becomes very obvious that not only is forced schooling, because that's what it is, relatively recent but it's it's got rather sinister origins it has such sinister origins that before i even address the origins i want to address uh, maybe the root cause that leads to some of the the problems being solved and i want to provide the hope before i tell you about the tragedy uh the resolution to some of these arguments that you know there is a non-elected ruling class or that they see men as machines that they see human beings as uh, you know cogs and wheels and things that they can you know manipulate in order to control. And so the resolution that I found for that is, uh, you know, you could feel very powerless when you realize these things are going on. But then you just realize that that is the default position. That is the autopilot. That is the cruise control. When we as individuals fail to assert our rights, fail to assert our self-reliance and fail to assert our will and by making choices, making informed choices, we are leaving it up to the non-elected rulers to have more power to do as they wish without, you know, any sort of resistance. And so instead of looking at it as these people are really powerful, they're in control of the world, and I don't even think it's people, I think it's a corrupt philosophy that people adopt that is controlling all the behavior of these people, uh, you can see it as, yes, that is the world without my participation in it. That is the world without, you know, communicating to your family and friends what's really going on in a credible way. And that's what I found powerful about John's work was that it was so credible. It wasn't, you know, here's a conspiracy theory about King John and the barons, you know, daughters of the barons of Runnymede. He used that as his own. In fact, he uses that term for his coming to an awareness of these things that they don't teach us in public school. And he doubted that such a group could have a continuity uh, over 500 years. And that, you know, when you look at it as a human being and an individual, you might live, you know, upwards of 80, 90 years if you're lucky. But these other groups that are multi-generational, that are organized beyond the comprehension of someone living one lifetime, things like the Vatican, that has a library that goes back who knows how long. And the fact that it's not open to everyday people, it's those places where they withhold useful information or they occult certain information, they hide it from the public. That is how the knowledge gap turns into the power gap, which turns into the wealth gap, that turns into all the problems that we experience. So... Before I get into the, the nasty history of compulsory schooling, I just wanted to put it out there that there are solutions and it is learning. Learning is the answer. What's the question? And we should all start thinking like that because the more we engage our minds in the everyday living of our lives, the more of our life, that, you know, when you look at it in hindsight, that's going to be full of our own choices and not us outsourcing our thinking to people who can barely manage their own lives. In fact, they can't because they have to live in a predatory, plundering manner off of people who produce and are hardworking. Well, we are told, basically, um, that we are essentially powerless and that we can't change things and that reality is the way it is through the means of some forces that are beyond our control. But we're told this by people who themselves are acting boldly to change the world and to shape it after their designs. Um, including the bulk of the rest of society. They say, no, you can't do anything outside your control. We'll take care of it. But by their own action, they're, they're negating what they're saying. 
Well, and this is the story of schooling that goes back, you know, 200, 200 years, or you can go back 2,000 years and look at the caste system, look at uh, how schooling evolved from Greek society up through Roman society into British society and into American society. Now, the one, one group of people that I left out purposely are the you know, group of people now known as Germans, but back in the 1800s, for most of the 1800s, they were known as the Prussians. And the, the Prussians basically had a militaristic society. And this militaristic society is based on mercenary soldiers. It's based on might makes right. It's based on a bunch of irrational ideas that are enforced by, you know, taking advantage of people using force, fraud, coercion, and worse, even death, if you don't listen to these authorities. So when they come up against Napoleon's army at the Battle of Jena in 1804, I think it was 1804, uh, they are defeated by this amateur army of upstarts from France with all these crazy ideas of revolution and, and overthrowing the status quo. And so Prussia as a country had to set about figuring out how to overcome people's, you know, their urge for self-preservation. Why soldiers just wouldn't stand in the middle of a battlefield and get shot at? Why were they running and trying to protect their houses? They should be sacrificing themselves for the state. And so a bunch of Prussian philosophers and military experts got together and they figured out how to harness the mind of human beings and how to kind of delete the things that make us human so that they could dumb us down into these automatons, these, you know, basically robots that would carry out their commands because they're kind of too cowardly to do these things themselves. So they need to use other people. And so Prussia adopted these methods. And this is, you know, basically the origins of what we know today as psychology and psychiatry. But they they were very successful and they had a, a very uh, astute observation of how things worked, made fantastic engineering uh, feats that, that nowhere else in the world had uh, had thought of and that everyone found useful. So they grew very powerful. And so they unified into Germany and uh, around the same time in the late 1800s, some guys from America go over and they don't even see the Prussian system in action. They kind of just see the results. And so they're like, we want these results for ourselves. And they began in Boston to bring these ideas back into this country and to seed various schools uh, that would be compulsory, meaning you don't have a choice, and that people's taxpayer dollars, whether they, whether they wanted to or not, would start contributing to these public institutions and all these ideas of, of corporations and states. They're just a, a right and left hand on the same body of non-elected rulers who are there by default because not enough people are examining themselves and demonstrating intellectual self-defense to make a difference and to change it off default. You need more than one person to change things off default or autopilot in this game. So what we're talking about is the importation of a mass mind control system in the form of the Prussian education system that started on the East Coast but eventually made its way through America. It was adopted by Japan and China and all these different countries around the world use the same system that we've all been brought up with uh, through the 20th century. So that's, you know, some of the highlights, and then we can get into the 20th century and uh, the foundations and the different corporations in a few minutes. Well, perhaps it might be, um, it'll take us a few moments to do, but we might be able to cover a lot of uh, ground uh, in one fell swoop if we were to run through one of the uh, sections in John Taylor Gatto's Weapons of Mass Instruction. It's where he uh, speaks about Alexander Inglis, and his 1918 book, The Principles of Secondary Education. And that breaks down the uh, what Gatto says are the actual purposes of modern schooling into six main functions. Uh, now, if I were to, to address for the listeners each one of these, and perhaps you could comment, and the first one uh, is called the adjustive or adaptive function, and it says, schools are to establish fixed habits of reaction to authority. This, of course, precludes critical judgment completely. It also pretty much destroys the idea that useful or interesting material should be taught because you can't test for reflexive obedience until you know whether you can make kids learn and do foolish and boring things. And that sounds like my school days. <laughs> well, I actually was so interested in what uh, Gatto wrote about Inglis that I wanted to get my hands on the primary source. Now, unfortunately... The Principles of Secondary Education by Alexander Inglis. It's very expensive to get your hands on a first edition copy of this. So what I have here is a, a reprint. But the reprint is literally a, a photocopy of each page in the first edition copy. So I doubted John. 
I said, oh, this, you know, this take on this English character, maybe it's a little bit harsh, maybe you're jumping to conclusions. But then when you go through the ultimate history lesson and there's all these different footnotes that I put in there for the various books and topics that he's talking about to try to give the audience another couple of handholds, you know, or footholds so that they can go beyond the film and really dig into this information themselves. That was a result of me editing the footage and hearing all these things that, you know, I had read all John's books. I had listened to every talk he'd ever given. I had done my research. I had a 50 page outline with questions to ask him. And he said, if I was here a week, we couldn't we couldn't do all this. Right. So I thought uh, mistakenly, naively, and I find out more every day about my naivete. Uh, I'm still learning. I'm not finished yet. Uh, I found out that uh, Inglis was he was definitely not our friend. Here's this guy who I don't even think I don't even think he likes children to start with. I don't know where he thinks he came from. He, you know, he acts like he's been an adult all his life. He has no compassion towards children and really has no right writing well yeah he can write it but the fact that they use this in our education system and they're like these are good ideas uh, it's completely about the ruling class using us and it's them figuring out how to harness us and train us like fleas and pick a couple of us to be like you know they would pick people out of private elite ivy league schools these sort of things to be the rulers of other people for that's their job to be the authority that kindergarten and first grade tells you you know is is a good thing uh you know when you're a child, these ideas of authority about the government, they're usually taken on by the parents, and that's how children learn about these things. If you put a logical person who knows nothing about these things, it'd be very, very challenging to convince them that they don't have you know, their rights except for this government entity or this corporate entity behind the government or, or however that works. So you know, there's, there's a lot to learn, and we're not getting it in school, and I think that's the point that John was making, and that's the point that I've taken up since then. Well, perhaps for the benefit of the listeners, I'll just briefly summarise the other points that, that John himself summarised from Inglis's work. Um, the second of these six functions is called the integrating function. Uh, this might well be called the conformity function because its intention is to make children as alike as possible. Uh, point three, the diagnostic and directive function. School is meant to determine each student's proper social role. Uh, point four, the differentiating function. Once their social role has been diagnosed, quote unquote, children are to be sorted by role and trained only so far as their destination in the social machine merits. Point five, the selective function, uh, not as in Darwin's theory, but in short, the idea is to help things along by consciously attempting to improve the breeding stock. Schools are meant to tag the unfit with poor grades remedial placement and other punishments clearly enough that their peers will accept them as inferior and effectively bar them from the reproductive sweepstakes. And finally, the propagutic function, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, the societal system implied by these rules will require an elite group of caretakers. To this end, a small fraction of the kids will quietly be taught how to manage this continuing project, how to watch over and control a population deliberately dumbed down and declawed in order that government might proceed unchallenged and corporations might never want for obedient labor. And that final class of people, that's the teachers. Well, that was great. Uh, and what I would like to complement that with is I have uh, the principles of secondary education open in front of me, and I'm reading from page 376 uh, in, at the bottom of the page. In other words, the adjustive function of secondary education includes both the establishment of certain fixed habits of reaction, certain fixed standards and ideals, and also the development of a capacity to readjust adequately to the changing demands of life. Under the integrating function, it says, it was there pointed out that one of the more imperative demands made by society on secondary school is provision for the development of that amount of like-mindedness, unity in thought, habit, ideals, standards, requisite for social co cohesion and social solidarity and under the differentiating function it's talking about social evolution so i'd like to introduce this idea that uh, my friend kevin cole has noticed through all of this empire study that we're doing it's this idea of organic unity and it's pushed forward as part of uh, let's say you know the british empire for lack of a better term is a good historical reference of this and it's where they're trying to make everything the same, to make it, uh, it's like, you know, to use, for lack of a better phrasing, it's like aliens coming to the planet and trying to adapt the planet to their needs 
and you know they're one percent and we're ninety nine percent. Now that's not that's not literal. That's a metaphor. I don't want to be confused with David Icke. I'm just saying it's about someone else coming into our environment and adapting it to their needs when they have no right to do that. We as individuals have our rights because we're breathing and because our heart's beating, not because some government is existing or some piece of paper. And in context of the forced education system, then I suppose the concept is that it's education is bad for the proletariat, for the working class or however you like to, to put it, but it's better to intervene and give them some limited guidance than to risk leaving them to their own devices. Well, they definitely can't leave us to our own devices. I mean, that's how America started out was some colonists who said, hey, you know what? It would be a lot better if we just were left to our own devices here on the side of the Atlantic. And for a couple of years, maybe it was even in the image that they had fought a revolution over. But soon thereafter, we were taken over by international bankers that have kind of gone around and, and they've loaned a lot of debt to countries that can't afford to pay it back. And that's how they're able to control a global economy is what they're trying to create. Uh, and they are able to control these nations' economies individually, but they would like to just make it easier on themselves according to their own documents and plans. And to change, uh, again, change our environment, change our attitudes and beliefs and take away freedom and take away self-reliance, take away you know, doing what you think needs to be done and sacrifice your individual self to the state the state will tell you what to do, when to do it, when to eat, when you know, when to sleep, and it's a lot easier than thinking to yourself if you just outsource these these modes of thinking. So, the elite ruling class has always educated their slaves to some degree. Here in America, in the in the South, pre-Civil War, it was basically illegal to let uh, to teach a slave to read because once you taught a slave to read, that would they the masters knew that that was a passport out of this, the plantation. Because that opens up communication with other slaves, and that starts like a, a leak. So they were trying to keep knowledge away in different levels and different grades throughout society. And so it's really a, a, a small group of schools around the world that teach the, you know, the kings. There's a school in, in Switzerland, for instance, called Les Roses, and it's known as the School of Kings. And if you look it up, you'll see that there's a lot of people who run countries have gone through that school. Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, brother of John Negroponte, I believe, is a graduate of Le Rose. So these influential minds do colonize and congregate in these different learning institutions, but they're not usually learning institutions open to, let's say, 99% of the population on this planet. And I think that's part of the problem is that they know that information being kept away from people, that allows them to create deception and illusions, divide and conquer, and that learning is the key to get out of that. Now, let's just say you find yourself at some kind of inadvertently you snuck in the back door of the fire escape at some elite function and find yourself talking to an elite globalist who very much wants the populace to be dumbed down and controlled. Uh, that's part of his agenda. You get talking to him and he says, oh, come on, man. We've got all these billions of people. We've got resource problems, population problems. You know, we can't have everyone being on a level playing field, doing their own little thing and fulfilling their potential, whatever that means. We've, we've got to keep a lid on this thing. You know, what would you say in response to that? Maybe not to him then and there, but in general, the, the idea that something has to be done to, you know, steer the planet in a particular direction, that that's an imperative that has to be um, addressed. Well, casting aside the possibility that you could be talking to a psychopath or a sociopath and logic and reason have no bearing on their actions you could ask them uh, if they're not one of those people you know what do you love about this life what do you get out of it what do you you know obviously you do these things because you get something out of it there's some reason behind it unless you're a psychopath he might say well i want the respect of my family or i want to provide a good future for my kids or any of the things that other people might say uh, but other people might not go as far to you know, violate other people's volition in order to meet their goals or to meet their needs. So you're talking to someone who they want things. They love things. There are things in life that they desire, and they maybe see money as the passport to that power and wealth and the illusory status that they're seeking. So once you get them to talk about the things about this life that they do love, because that's why they're out there working their ass off to get this money to do these other things, then you bring it back. And it's like, well, if you love your kids and your grandkids, then how does dumbing down everyone else you know, around us? Because what you have is that infecting, uh, you know, are the top levels of what appear to be our government, but they're not really our government because, you know, the lobbyists and corporations and special interests and all these other, you know, uh, electoral college like uh, devices 
are there to prevent individuals from actually you know, making their free will known and having that acted upon in society through, you know, for instance, the voting system. So once you bring it back and show that you're actually, you know, you're poisoning your great grandchildren, you know, they're not going to have a good memory of you, uh, you know, being an AIG worker who took all this money to make them rich during this time because they're going to be adversely affected in ways that you can't even imagine uh, nor intend. And, you know, when you have a group of people that think that, you know, this lifetime is their lifetime to take advantage of everything in the world. Uh, you know, there were people who were on this planet and occupied it before I got here. This place was going on when I got here. It'll be going on when I leave here. And there'll be people that come after us. So you just have to recognize that you are an individual. You do have your rights, but you also have a responsibility not to screw over those you're trying to help in this world. And I think that the people who claim to gain all this power from global warming or any of these other carbon-based scams, uh, for instance, they're really just cheating their own families. They're hurting their own families. And once you can get someone to actually realize that, then you can see if they're a psychopath or not. Because if they don't care, take two steps to the other direction. You know what I'm saying? Because they're not operating on reason. They don't have compassion. They don't love anything in this world. And they are just operating like someone else's machine. That's dangerous, but you need. That's how you recognize the, you know, the machines from the human beings, so to speak. That's metaphorical. Again, I'm not saying that there's cyborgs out there yet, but they are cloning. You know, they're cloning all over the planet. It's, you know, there's places that don't have regulations, so take it all into account. What you're describing basically is empathy, and uh, you're right to bring in the term psychopath because you know we know I think it's something like five percent of the population can be classed as psychopathic and that percentage increases when you get into the realms of quote unquote the elites i know that's a bit of a nebulous term but i think we we both know what we mean by that and i think probably most people listening do and i agree with you completely on the on the points you've made and i despise listening to people who are doing everything they can do to dumb down the general populace you and me included in that and to then criticize them for being slovenly or dumbed down or apathetic or whatever. I'd like to see everybody given the maximum chance they can. Some people will do better than others, but as you rightly point out, we're all in this together. And I, I think I'd love to see a world where everyone had the chance to fulfill you know, their ultimate potential and how different that might look. And you might find that the need to corral people and control people and, and fight over resources and do a lot of these things that are being done in our name would suddenly go away. People, you know, first off, fear is used against us. It's a it's a survival reflex. It's there to help us long term through evolution. But in 20th century, 21st century, it's been played against us. So first off, everyone has fear about having their needs met. I don't have any fear about having my needs met as long as I'm around other human beings. I fear being around people who outsource their thinking, who who act irrationally, who act emotionally without observing what's going on. That's dangerous. Those people aren't using their minds. They have outsourced it, and they're waiting for orders. So if I'm around those people, yeah, I'd have a fear for you know scarcity. But as long as I'm around human beings, I know that if I'm in a situation, someone else is going to have empathy, and I can help them, they can help me, whatever needs to go on. It's only when you're around sociopaths and psychopaths that that, that becomes a real fear. So People can take a step back and say, as long as I'm cool with my neighbors and my neighbors are cool with me, then we can all keep our heads and not panic if something happens. If the electricity goes out and doesn't come back on, we don't need to fight and kill each other over gasoline. Like We can figure that out ourselves. We don't need a government. We don't need authority to figure out our own problems, but that's how we've been educated. So after you've been trained for 15,000 hours that you can't go to the bathroom without asking, that you can't ask a question without putting your hand up and waiting to be called on, all these other cues that we take into the work world and then we become, you know, parents or uncles or, or however you want to see it. You're you're an adult, but you have an, a case of extended adolescence that until you do that work to undo the conditioning that public schooling uh, puts on individuals and as people as a group around the world, until you do that work for yourself, you're, you at least have to have the awareness that you're operating at a far lower level than you could be operating as a mature, responsible, you know, self-reliant adult who not only knows how to take care of themselves with compassion, but can take care of other people with compassion when the time comes. And if that time comes, you have to be able to act as a human being and not re react like an automaton who has been programmed to have your habits and your thoughts and your reactions and everything else uh, pre-programmed by the school system. And that's what English was saying back in 1918. Yes, well, if people are 
perhaps struggling to imagine how society would function without this institutionalized schooling. They don't have to go back very far into history. And if you look at the uh, early days of the United States and you know the best of the things that happened during that period, children were became a functional part of society uh, as soon as they were able to. I mean, certainly as, as kids, they would have done tasks around the home and what have you. And uh, they, as they you know got stronger and got into teenage years, they'd be able to do more adult jobs. And they were an important part of the family and they couldn't afford to have, you know, members of the family um, off somewhere for, you know, however many hours a day um, doing nothing productive. Uh, the children would learn from the adults, um, you know, academic subjects and practical things as well. And uh, I very much liked John Taylor Gatto's section on how he thinks adolescence is basically a bogus you know, denomination that <laughs> it, it's, been, it's been created as a sort of a modern um, artifice. And uh, but also uh, interesting that when forced schooling did begin to be introduced into the US, uh, initially it was voluntary uh, and it was not at all popular. Well, it's a case of boiling the frog, right? So America has a amazingly short sense of history. We think of, you know, when Americans think of history, they think back to the beginning of this country, you know, over 200 years ago. So let's take that example. George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson, these other these guys could read. Did they go to compulsory public schooling or were they just taught how to recognize letters, how to form words, how to form sentences? They're like, oh, I already I get speaking. I can I can get reading. Reading only takes, let's say, 100 to 200 hours to learn. Once you know how to read and you know how to use a library and you know how to ask questions and, and find relevant answers. That's it. You've you've opened life's entire door. You can learn how to do anything you want uh, as far as. Mechanics-wise, I'm not saying you can actually be president if you get straight A's, because that's a myth. We're told in this country that anyone can become president. Clearly, that's not true, because every president that we've had all the way back is all related to King John. In the community, there's a, there's a great video. It's a, it's a 12-year-old girl discovers that uh, all the presidents are related back to King John. She researched the father's side and the mother's side of these families and apparently no one had been researching the the, the maternal side of these uh, presidential families i had a, a substantial book that uh, traced all the different genealogies you could see how a bunch of the presidents were already related back into the uh, the british royalty um but uh yeah it's it's fascinating how so many people can be related back to uh, the guy who did the 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 battle at runnymede with the barons right so you've got this confrontation that goes on almost, you know, like a thousand years ago, and it's still affecting uh, government in this supposedly free country today. I think that's just fascinating. With regards to, um, you know, the, the early U.S., I was just speaking about a situation where kids grew up at home and eventually they would perhaps leave home, you know, homestead on their own, get married, whatever. There's something of a tradition of homeschooling left in the U.S., as, as I referred to earlier. But uh, today, a lot of parents, even if they're dissatisfied with institutionalized schooling, um, don't believe that they have the competence to educate their own children, even though it's that's because they've been through public schooling. Yeah. So exactly. let's look at it this way. What you're describing as the self-reliance uh, attitude of maybe the settlers moving west during the Manifest Destiny campaign in yes. the United States uh, that was funded by the Rothschilds. But I digress on that point. The point is. They're out there trying to survive. So if a kid's old enough to cut wood, they're probably cutting wood and trying to, you know, gather firewood and these sort of things. And so it's not just about learning to read because I've, uh, I'm fond of saying that literacy is a form of slavery until critical thinking is practiced by the individual. And, and if you learn how to read and you don't learn how to think for yourself, you just became someone else's tool. Whoever's writing whatever, you became their tool. So you have to think critically about what you read. It's not that important moving west and, and trying to you know, colonize America because it was more about survival outside. Today, we have parents who weren't from moving west. They might have been moving around in some different corporate jobs. They've been through a public education system. They think that it takes 15,000 hours plus four years of college plus a couple more years in grad school to get a job in life. They've forgotten that in order to create a job, you need sales and you need a product. That's the missing link between, you know, where jobs are in America and why there aren't being, you know, jobs being created because we've forgotten the formula of how to create a job. If you're not going to be self-reliant and you want to work for somebody else, if you know how to create jobs, that's a very powerful thing. But our politicians, they don't, you know, they don't do anything with this formula. They don't say, you know, they're like, well, we'll give tax cuts and we'll you do these other things that are superficial and they don't really have any 
they don't have any purposeful causality behind them that, that produces the results we're looking for. So we've lost that self-reliance mentality that it might be left in our grandparents' generation. But how many kids today talk to their grandparents about these things and how many grandparents are actually up for talking about these things? So there's a big knowledge gap that's being filled in with fear. And that fear is that you can't educate your own children, that you don't know enough to educate your own children. But the truth is what they need to learn in life can be taught at home in far less hours than public schooling could ever deliver or will ever deliver. Because the purpose of public schooling is for you to go out to work, be separated from your children, have your children accept all these other strangers at the public school as their authority. And they spend more waking hours at the public school than they do with their parents who are too tired when they come home from work to do anything constructive with their children. So that's the mentality from which they're thinking. They're thinking from the point of scarcity. They're thinking from the point of not having thought the whole thing out. But if you go through and analyze what actually needs to be done, you'll see that it's a far better use of your time and it's a far more compassionate uh, tr experience for your child to be able to be taught by relatives or loved ones the essential goals and the things that you need in life to stay alive. Uh, you know, that, that's a priceless thing that the schools aren't going to teach us. So it's all about reprioritizing your habitual time as a parent. What are you doing with your time that you don't have time to do these important things for your child, to review the, you know, the contents of the, of the vaccination before you breach their immune system and overload it with 60 shots in, in a very short amount of time, right? How do we have time to watch Dancing with the Stars and watch People, you know, turn left for 500 miles or watch some football game that we're not playing in and not have the time to research to help our families. I think I was reasonably resistant to programming at school, but I remember countless times uh, speaking to my grandfather about something that happened at school or something I was told at school. And he said, just ignore it. Or he'd, he'd get down the encyclopedia and say, this is this is the way it is. Just ignore it, he would say. It's not just what they say isn't always true. But, and then thinking back, it says, well, why was I there? <laughs> you know, because I remember once, I don't know if you guys have this. I'm sure you've got a similar concept. But I was put in detention once. And this basically meant I'd done something naughty, had to stay behind school for an hour. And in our school, detention took place in the library. So you're locked in the library for an hour. Well, I didn't want to leave. I thought, well, can I come in here tomorrow at eight before school starts? And can I stay till six, three after three hours after school finishes? Because this is and they're great. like, it's not a punishment. It's <laughs> not working on him. You know, and, and we do have detention here in the United States. And I don't recall ever having detention. But I do recall discussing a lot of things with my babysitters who were my dad's great aunt, uh, my grand, my grandparents on both sides. So I was always around adults. I wasn't doing a lot of childhood things uh, beyond the age to, of doing childhood things. When I had schoolwork and homework, they would point me toward the world book or the encyclopedia. And, and from a young age, I was familiar with those books. And I could look up different snakes and spiders and things that I was interested in even before I went to school. I'd ask my dad to write down the alphabet because I wanted to learn how to read before I went to school. So by the time I went to kindergarten and they're teaching people the ABCs, I already knew how to read and write. So for the first couple of years of school, I was highly unchallenged because all I wanted to do was go home and do more advanced things and read more advanced books than they would let me. Like I used to have to they would have these things where it was called reading is fundamental and they would give away all these different books. Well, being in kindergarten or first grade, I wanted the books, uh, the the uh, they were Star Wars books. Uh, hmm. They were a sixth grade or seventh grade reading level. And they're like, well, you can't have these books because they're, you know, you're only in kindergarten or first grade. And I'd be like, well, pick up the book. You know, let me read the book. I'll tell you. If I can read this book, then I get to have this book, right? And they gave me a hard time, but eventually they did. And so it was my fascination with things like Star Wars and popular culture that led me into being a literate, well-spoken person occasionally. <laughs> well, it's just I've had two similar experiences. That's really a weird coincidence. One, I had a thing when I was about nine years old, and we were going to have a reading day. So we had to bring in a book from home that we we're going to read in class. I and mean, what the point of that was, I'm not quite sure. But it was a bit of blessed relief. And I had a James Bond novel. And I remember the teacher saying, is this the sort of thing you should be reading? And OK, there was a couple of sex scenes in it. But I didn't understand them anyway. I just skipped over that. But he was just worried about the, you know, the content of it, uh, whether I could cope, you know, whether I'd be traumatized. With adult but, situations. Yeah, basically, basically with, with that. And uh, also, I was I had to do I had to repeat an entire year at school because I wasn't, get this, old enough to go on to the next, you know, I'd kind of, because of changing schools and some weird different boundary things, it was kind of, 
oh, you got to repeat this year again. You'd be like, yeah, but I passed all the exams. I want to go on. Oh, no, because you're two months younger than the rest of these guys, you're staying here for another year. And that was, well, it wasn't quite a waste of an entire year of my life. But just you think about that now. And when I think back, it was just like, I was so pointless. Well, I think it's, well, it's, it's a common experience. You're not the only one. Uh, I had other friends that, you know, you're friends with people and then they get held back. And some kids that, you know, are making fun of that. And you're just like, I'm just separated from my friend. Now he's in all these different classes. We were in the same classes. So it's cruel and unusual punishment to say that you're not smart enough to go on to the next grade. I think it's a sign of the school and maybe the teacher, but more likely the system that has been created that no one questions. And it is, uh, it infringes on the freedom of each and every child. Like I said, I didn't get sent to detention, but what did that mean? It means I had to be compliant to the nth degree because that's always the threat. Oh, you're gonna have to stay up to school and get detention. For me, I rode a bus and I didn't have a ride home and we lived far from the school. So for me, it meant more trouble at home than I was going to get in at school to have detention because I'd be inconveniencing my parents. And, you know, so these sort of things that keep us in line, they're not done out of logic and reason and respect because a child is reflecting these things and understanding these concepts. They're done out of fear of reprisal. They're done out of fear of punishment. And this is very much what Skinner and Milgram and Pavlov and these other characters had 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 written out and formulated to be implemented through a public school system. And it's just, I, I can't believe it's gone on this long. I can't believe that there aren't very few many, there, there aren't very many people before John Taylor Gatto who had written about this stuff. There are a bunch of books, Gatto found a bunch of them uh, that, that say from the elite side what they're doing. But there's very few pioneers, uh, you know, trailblazers like Gatto who laid this out. Uh, that Quigley's one of them, Anthony Sutton but not on the education system. They had adjacent uh, realizations about our culture. John's work ties that all together because if you want to understand how you know Wall Street was funding the Bolsheviks and the Nazis and FDR all at the same time, you need to understand that those very same people that were funding the enemies were also in control of creating public schooling, in control of the General Education Board. That was a Rockefeller crony named uh, Gates, Frederick T. Gates, who was in charge of the, uh, the General Education Board. And he was Rockefeller's advisor. It wasn't like he was somebody six degrees of separation away. Like he, They spent a lot of time together. Uh, the Carnegie Endowment, with what they created, uh, Norman Dodd is the best reference that I would have on this, but in talking about it with John, you know, he came across the Reese Committee, and the, uh, there was another committee in like 1918 that had also looked into schooling. And when I first heard Norman Dodd explain it, he's like, you know, look, we sent uh, this woman, Catherine Casey, who's a lawyer from D.C., who didn't believe in any of this stuff. We sent her to uh, the Carnegie Endowment's uh, minutes for their meetings uh, from 1908 through, let's say, 1912. And every year they focused on one question. And by the time they had answered four substantial questions, they had figured out how to take over the entire political, you know, domestic and foreign infrastructure of this country. And we've got 300 military bases around around the world. So it's not just this country that they took control of. They took control of the, 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 the magnificent amount of resources that America represents. And they use them as, you know, basically a metaphorical gun that we point at all these other countries in, uh, in an attempt to colonize them and to bring about a global society. And I think it's a tragic waste of America's potential just because – they were able to dumb a few generations of us down. But now there's hope because we are waking up. We do have the evidence. We are communicating and, and making media to communicate this to the larger population. And we don't need everyone to know or appreciate this information. We only need, you know, three to five to 10% of people to really start to realize how poisonous the system that they have created purposely is. It's not by accident. And it's not the only degree of predatory plundering that's going on there's also you know the fact that the food supply is being genetically modified that they're poisoning the water system with fluoride and all these other angles it comes back to the fact that people are unwitting to what's going on and that people if they had this information in front of them they would make a different choice but they trust the people who provide the water even though it's being privatized you know beyond fluoride they trust the people who sell them the food in the grocery store. They trust their doctor when he says the vaccination is safe for your child, even though it's not been tested. 
And the doctor has no idea what the ingredients in there. The the guy who sold it to him told him that these drugs are okay to give to kids and and bypass the immune system and what have you not. So it's about the toxic culture that has been created due to our absence of consciousness, uh, you know, through the past century. Yes, and this is brings us back again to the the whole subject of the education system because in order to break that, the most effective way would be to have people, you know, coming up through childhood who've never had that programming because it can be very difficult to deprogram and to use the metaphor of the matrix, you know, to unplug. Um, much better to have, I mean, in one generation, the, the, the whole world would change beyond recognition if that, that generation of children grew up uh, in the sort of ways that we've been talking about and not in within this, you know, controlled compulsory system. Well, I think this program... That, you know, we all use this idea of programming that somebody else is is instilling their intent on your mental software. Uh, programming is simply the absence of you asking the substantial questions and finding the relevant answers for yourself. The programming that Skinner and Milgram and Pavlov and all these characters worked out, they are all dependent on the subject not thinking critically, especially not with a method by which you could identify the contradictions and rapidly organize it and understand the form and function, the individual parts, that's the law of identity, the definitions, that's the comparison and contrast, all these different aspects that I do hundreds of times a day now that I have a method. It's no longer a hundred different problems that I have to solve. It's a hundred different applications of the same method in, in, in different areas. So when, once you have a method that you, know, you can take this confusion and you can process it into some knowledge, once you can take your frustration and, and possible anger at a situation and process that through to understanding and compassion and empathy, that is the process of being human. That's, what's make, that's what makes us different. That's what they try to take out of the school system. And the homeschoolers picked it up and said, look, if you're not going to teach these basic, th basic ideas of how to survive without violating the volition of other people, then we're going to teach it to our own children. And that's what I encourage people to do is just consider the possibilities. You're not going to be able to do it until you have a plan, until you've done the research, until you think it through. But it is possible. And yes. people should consider it. Yes, and it's empowering. It really is because then you can step out of the situation where you're saying, I, I have been programmed. I am being programmed on an ongoing basis and realize that you can get to a certain point that you describe. Well, it doesn't work anymore. They can do what they like. It doesn't work anymore. Well, let's just uh, you know. Let me let me practice what I was uh, preaching there metaphorically. Uh, let's think in 4D. This is what I I gave a name to my process. So I was thinking through it, and it's really a four-step process of discern, define, detect, and describe. So you're observing. That's your discernment. You're using your five senses to observe. You're using the law of identity and your ability to identify patterns that are different and make things the same. That's your definition. That's define. Your organization is simply detecting these contradictions and these fallacies and removing them so that you have consistent thinking and you have consistent representation of what's going on. That's truth versus the reality that they peddle. And then you want to communicate. So you have to describe it to people. And this means describing it in such a way that they can take it as valid information and not have to say, well, it's a good story, but I'm not sure if I believe them. And that's what holds society up. It's all the doubt that we don't know how to resolve. It takes up our mental ram. And there are processes, there are methods that you can use. I use a four-step method that seems pretty commonsensical to clear my RAM. And there's also these other issues in society. They're all thinking-based, whether it's the brainwashing and mind control of our students and, and the adult population through the mass media. That's the outsourcing of your thinking. That's the default position. You have to ask questions and find answers to actually be thinking. That's what thinking is. It's a process of non-contradictory identification. And that's what reality is. That's what it should be if you take away all the illusions and contradictions. There's also this idea of politics. Well, politics always plays on the idea of inconsistent thinking. So there again, we need a method of, of critical thinking. War, that's based on dehumanization. That is a null set. You are not thinking at all if you are dehumanizing people around the world and using our tax dollars to kill them, right? Uh, selling your soul. The concept of selling your soul is outsourcing your thinking. It is giving away, it's giving away your your, your God-granted gift to ask questions and make choices in your life, and it's saying to someone else, you're better qualified to do that for me. Or the concept of selling out. This is the inclusion of contradictory thinking. When people say one thing and they do another thing, it's an, it's a, it's a indicator of inconsistent thinking 
And these are things that we should notice because people who can't manage their time can't remain in integrity because they can't be reliable because they can't manage their time. You see how it works around? So it's, it's all these things that come together that make what you want. And I'm saying they purposely take out certain ingredients so that we can never achieve the recipe that we're looking for in life. Now, the system as we're describing it, uh, the education system is delivering dramatic declines, actually, in literacy and, and other basic um, skills. And yet, without this effective indoctrination, uh, the entire industrialized system uh, is becoming undermined and is in danger of collapsing. This would be a disaster for global corporations. But it's interesting when we consider what's happening with the, the global economy at this moment. So how do you think these two things are interplaying at the minute? The the sort of the, the organic breakdown of the educational system, which seems to be happening and how that nexus is in with what's happening globally uh, and in politics as well, but particularly with the financial system, which underpins everything. Well, when I look at a, the, the international corporate system, I, I mean, I see that all the way back to the British East India Company and its employing of Thomas Malthus and all these other ideas that percolate up today as overpopulation. So I don't ever think that the corporate aspect is going to go completely away uh, because the corporations are now global. They will con continue to exist and, and flourish and feed off of other parts of the world. But I really think from reading the, the game plan, Americans were, were given freedom – uh, whether by revolution or by, you know, a uh, secret plan of King George, we were groomed and bred to think we're free. And then they slowly took away all of our freedom, but we still think we're free. And so in America, we have no word to describe when a slave doesn't know that they're a slave. We just call ourselves Americans. And so as long as we fail to ask the questions and find the substantial answers, we're going to see a decline in our corporate presence and in, in the jobs in America because we forgot how to make jobs. We forgot that equation. And we're going to continue to see more socialization, more government ownership over private corporations and more dependence on the government. That's what they want. They want dependent servants. They don't want people to be prepared for you know, electricity outages or prepared to help their neighbors in, in a time of danger or disaster. They don't want anything that resembles self-reliance or the way that America used to be because they've redefined freedom as the loss of your security. So the more security we lose, the, whether it's uh, you know physical ability to be self-sustaining and earn your own living, or the ability to make your own decisions in life. They want all of that outsourced. They don't want you to decide what you're feeding your child. They're going to have the school give them some good GMO food with an internal laxative so that they can pass it through their body because it's not food. But they don't trust parents to make their own lunches in certain parts of the country. And I think it's ludicrous that A, you, that it's by law that someone else takes your kids, that those people have no interest in the children, provably by the, only, by the primary sources of the people who created our schooling system. It is very much a panopticon, uh, a 360-degree set of mirrors, metaphorically, used to peer into each of these students, break them of their individuality, condition them to be under the uh, control of authority, reactionary control of authority, without thinking, and, you know, it's it's one of the cruelest and most inhumane things that you can do to anybody, let alone children. And I think it says a lot about the people that we're up against, that they systematically go after our children and other people's children uh, for, for generation after generation using science, using eugenics or molecular biology, they call it today, to shape people into something that they had no choice and have no inclination to be shaped into. And yet that's the system. And when the system, you know, Pink Floyd had it right. That's a meat grinder. Children go in one side and they come out the other all ground up and homogenized into people who think the same and react the same and dress the same and do the same because that's how corporations uh, can sell these products. And it's through the chasing of money and superficial, you know, uh, pageantry in the American culture that, uh, that they're able to control us. They keep people broke. They keep you in debt. They keep us dumb and unwitting to what's going on. And I'm just saying, you know, we don't have to give the pricks the, satisf the satisfaction of, of remaining <laughs> that way. Just because they, they want it that way doesn't mean we have to give it to them. And that if I can, you know, put a couple letters together into a word and form a sentence and then read sentences, th that's communication. I have all the tools I need and I can go forward and I can look at what's been found before I got here. I can find some things on my own and hopefully I leave a much clearer map for generations ahead of me. Uh, because what I inherited here what, through public schooling is a purpose, purposely inaccurate map 
that purposely leads you into pitfalls where they profit from your pain. And I don't know why more people haven't realized this, talked about it, wrote books about it, made movies about it. But now that we're here and on the scene, it seems like the thing to do. So to be free is to think for yourself, is to be free and round it goes. And just in conclusion, John Taylor Gatto was encouraged that the concept of mass schooling was becoming exhausted and encouraged that the Internet was going to do a great deal, and you know, this is obviously where you come in, with what he called open source learning. Um, are you encouraged in the work that you've been doing at tragedyandhope.com that things are beginning to move in the right direction? I don't know that I would have been encouraged back when I first read that idea, but at that time I didn't really know how to leverage the internet in my own best interest. I, I had an inconsistent way of asking questions and the answers I found may or may not have been substantial. I didn't have a consistent method to flesh out whether or not they were. And so the internet has a tremendous potential and they've put it there right in front of us. And they hope that we don't know the proper questions to ask the Google or the start page or, you know, I don't try to hide from all their information collection because they pretty much have a good profile on everybody and they can pretty much predict everyone's behavior between Facebook and Google and these other things. So I'm looking for the information. I found that StartPage, while a great idea, doesn't deliver the same results that you, know, that you need. A lot of the results that you need are in the Google search. So uh, it's about knowing how to sift through those results, how to inquire deeper and go several layers in. So uh, if you're digging into something and you keep finding more and more and more information, it's likely it's probably not a hoax. But most of the superficial illusions that they have out there can be cracked within one or two layers of searching. And so everything that you want in life is basically only a couple searches away, repeated, because freedom does come from learning. Freedom does come from thinking, but only if you think consistently, only if you remove the contradictions, only if you fail to follow into the belief of fallacies, because that's how people use words to lie to us and trick us and deceive us. And they find uh, benefit through plundering our production, but... That only happens when you're not smart enough to say, oh, well, this this is a scam or this is, you know, incorrect information. There's a lot of people who read uh, a journalist uh, who calls him or herself Sorsha Fall. But if you actually do some searching, you'll see it's a guy named David Booth. So it's not a Russian woman who puts these incredible things out on the Internet. They're superficial memes that are put out there just to track how many people will pass something on without looking into the, you know, the who, what, where, when, why and how of anything and asking those questions and getting a general amount of familiarity. So the internet very much has this potential and what we try to do to catalyze that potential is to provide adults with the tools and examples they need. I, I'm learning this stuff for myself so I just try to leave a, a trail of breadcrumbs so that other people don't have to randomly go through the trial and error that I've had to experience and the tools are credible and people find a lot of value. There's several people in the past year after seeing the ultimate history lesson who have started their own businesses. They had a good idea, but didn't have the method or didn't understand the landscape well enough. And this is very encouraging because that's how you create jobs. You take an idea you have, you make a plan, you get a little funding for that plan, and you keep moving forward. I mean, there are points in every project where you're going to feel like you, you want to quit and you shouldn't be doing that or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's just your gut check. And so it's time to think about what you're doing, why you're doing it. Is it a good use of your time? Is this the change that you want to see in the world? And if so... I encourage you to keep taking a couple more steps and it'll get easier because, you know, that's how progress is made. You have to make it over that that hump in the middle of every project or any situation that you're trying to do something that you haven't done a hundred times already. Those things are going to come up. So I just encourage people to be patient, be polite and be persistent despite the resistance. Well, Richard, as I say, to wrap up, perhaps you'd like to tell the listeners um, about your websites and uh, what you offer at Tragedy Hope and hope.com and other places. Oh, that's a good plug for tragedyandhope.com. At tragedyandhope.com, it's a, it's a website that, first off, is named after a famous history book that everybody should at least know about, if not read. Uh, so there's that aspect. And what we try to do, recognizing the content that's in that history book, that there are a group of non-elected rulers, that they, can, they control both sides, Republican and Democrat, and we try to provide the, the trail of breadcrumbs in the form of logical, reasonable maps leading to that which exists in objective reality to help you weed out these illusions and contradictions that are used to steal your power. Uh, the main site uh, has our, our uh, media partners as well who are 
uh, also commercial free and independent and produce content that is very uh, synergistic with what we produce. And I also produce a podcast at peacerevolution.org. And it's a, it's a do-it-yourself, autonomous, uh, adult curriculum. It's the things that, t- that school should have taught you that you may think you have paid for, but you didn't get this piece of information or this other angle on this. So what I try to do is teach a curriculum where uh, each episode is like a week of class, uh, pretty much. And uh, they range from five to seven hours, and you can break it up and listen to a little bit each day to reprioritize some of your habitual time, get you thinking in the light direction. And uh, it's just what I'm learning for myself or aspects of what I'm learning for myself that I try to put out there so that other people can do likewise, because I don't want to be the person or the only person who knows all this stuff. And I don't even want to be the person who understands all this stuff the best. I just see myself as someone who, you know, encountered something that's interesting and it's all over the place and nobody else sees it. So it's my job to try to help make it obvious so that once more people understand what's going on, we could actually take uh, substantial action and, and see some change that reflects what we're trying to do in the world, which is make ourselves free and let other people know that they can be free too, but I don't want to force anything on anybody. Well, Richard Grove, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Greg, it's my pleasure, and I'm sorry that you had to wait so many weeks, but it was worthwhile. I appreciate your politeness, patience, and persistence, and uh, I admire what you do, so thank you. Well, that's it for another time. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, Please check out the website, LegalizeFreedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating subjects. I'd also urge you to explore TragedyAndHope.com, also the Ultimate History Lesson.com, and finally, the Peace Revolution Podcast. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.